Okay, no nonsense guide to localism. It's a bit a bit wider than localism because it looks at the um, the other changes that are taking place at a national level across central government as well. So, um, just a little bit about locality. Locality, as you know, has come about as a consequence of the merger of the Development Trust Association and the British Association of Settlements and Social Action Centres. And we support organisations like Battersea Arts Centre. So supporting the asset transfer, the asset acquisition, the, the business planning, the community enterprise work that takes place from those, looking to, to support community-based organisations to, I guess, become truly um, sustainable within their own communities, both financially and also the work that they do, um, and uh, yeah, allowing them basically to do the thing that they need to do most and best, which is place shape the place that they are in for the people that are in those communities. So... Um, you know, localism is quite a significant agenda to these to this group of organisations potentially. A um, little bit about the membership there is widespread, quite significant asset ownership base and, and significant employment of, of of staff as well. So, so rattling on, looking at the changes that are taking place at a national level, um, we'll talk about localism. Uh, but there's also education reform, health reform. Question mark against big society because. Um, you know, big society seems to have, have fallen off an agenda to a certain extent in that it's not talked about as much as it was. And there are a whole range of other initiatives as well. And I think one of the things we're trying to do is to get to a point where each of those would be regarded as a bit of a jigsaw. And it, the question is, is how do you put the picture together? And I think, you know, everybody's recognised that potentially localism is a double-edged sword and there's an opportunity for us to, to pick it up and, and wield the sword and create truly sustainable communities or alternatively might be sort of more bleak picture if we, if we don't rise to that challenge. So just before I move on, it's worth saying that I think, you know, seminal moment was in May 2010 um, and, and I guess it was 60 minutes down in an FA Cup final and we, that's we there, we missed the penalty. Uh, since then we've been in administration twice and, and we've got a whole new team and the, and the future's less than certain and I, and I think you know I'm talking about the demise of, of Pompey Football Club and that's a side that I've supported man and boy sort of thing um, and, and I think it's interesting parallels with the changes that are taking place nationally in the country and that you know actually the, the financial collapse is ongoing and it's not clear about what that will look like there's a whole change of things that have taken place and it's new completely left right and centre that you look um, and I also wonder whether actually there are some other parallels. So, you know, one of the things I would say about Pompey is, you know, new new team completely, but but they built new teams before and they've had interesting people there before. So, Conan Doyle used to play in golf for them, and I just wonder whether actually when we come out of, of, of all of the current stuff that's going on in terms of the the current collapse and and we've pieced localism together, whether actually what we'd be doing is we'd be recognising that we need new people in different places and that we're playing with different strengths sort of thing. So maybe a bit of optimism, maybe a bit of pessimism there, I'm not entirely sure. And I'll, I'll probably come back to the uh, to the analogies around Portsmouth in a bit. So moving on then, localism. Localism now, um, we achieved Royal Ascent in November last year. Um, it's an act, most of it's in place. There are bits of it in terms of the regulations that still to be... Uh, yeah, I guess still to be to, to be rolled out um, and, and, and still to come into force, as it were. Uh, the, the the clear focus is trying to shift power away from central government and, and to local to, towards local people. So it's about local self determination. So 
it's critical that organisations like you know Battersea Arts Centre and, and others, uh, you know, the transition movements, get engaged with it because it's about their opportunity potentially to shape the places that they are in in a way that is sustainable for those communities. So what does localism itself contain? Um, there are four main measures in terms of localism. Uh, a whole raft of sort of freedoms and flexibilities for local authorities and local government. A raft of new rights as well um, that, that think about the roles of individuals as well as the roles of community groups uh, and, and you know the role of the individual within the community sort of thing. There's the, the, the reform of the planning system, and I, th I think most of us would have, would have seen um, you know, some of the debate that's taken place over certainly last summer in terms of the development of the national planning policy framework and the, and the implications of that. And then there's, there's a, a, a range of measures around reform, reforming housing and decisions about housing at, at a local level, which are quite interesting as well. So just trying to cover each one of those, and I'll probably just pick out the highlights rather than cover each one in, in detail. Um, um, and I would say, you know, come back to us if you want more in terms of detail for each of these. So, freedoms and flexibilities for local government. I, I guess one of the interesting ones is the issue around the, the rules of predetermination. So, in previously, it was imp almost impossible for local councillors to, to engage in discussion at a local level about whether they supported, for example, a planning application or not. Um, you know, because they wouldn't be, then be able to sit there and, and do the due diligence, but at a, a committee level to actually say that they supported it or, or, or not, sort of thing. So, you know, that, that's changed. Now, it does mean that local councillors can play an active role in, in discussions at a local level. Um, that's probably a good thing. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe a bit, maybe it'll raise tensions. I mean, what it does do is it changes the role of, of you know, local authority councillors. And I think writ large throughout localism and the changes that we're seeing, you know, with the new freedoms and new rights, the issue is really about how how community groups engage with um, local authority um, councillors because their role is changing and, and you know, the roles of communities potentially is changing with the Enabling Act that we've now got. So, you know, working that relationship out is absolutely critical, I guess. Um, but also means that you can have decent and proper discussions with with them rather than the sort of you know the, the the lack of discussion that on occasions took place so you know where people are coming from which I think has got to be a good thing um, also within the uh, the new freedoms and flexibilities the general power of competence for a local authority to do anything that is now legal I mean it does beg the question what they could do that wasn't legal before sort of thing and I guess it's, there's nothing there but you know I think the the aim there is to free up local authorities to be able to work with communities in the right way to think about local solutions and I think there's a there's a read across from that to potentially the Sustainable Communities Act and we'll come on to that later and also some of the, the stuff around the new rights as, as, as well so so real opportunities there potentially um, uh, and I guess the last thing to say is the you know the abolition of the standards board in terms of the freedoms and flexibilities the, the, the implications of that who knows at this stage but one of the one of the interesting things there is that you know, previously uh, there was a method of, of, of actually looking at the conduct of local authority uh, councillors that that to a certain extent possibly has gone with the abolition of the standards board which means again in terms of relationships with, with local authorities and communities with local authorities it's absolutely critical that you work hard at that relationship and work hard at the relationship with, with local authority elected members as well. So 
Moving on. The second uh, main measure in terms of localism is the, the new rights, and people will have heard, I suspect, about the right to challenge, right to bid, and, and, and also possibly the right to build. Right to build will come on to in a bit, because that's within the... Um, and that's within the measures around the changes in the planning system. So, so very briefly, right to challenge. Um, right to challenge is around local. Uh, it's around local community voluntary sector organisations, parish councils, and the the, the potential spin out from from local authorities and other public sector agencies, the sort of mutuals and co-ops that that have been talked about. Um, basically, expressing an interest in in wanting to run particular public services. Uh, so the way that it works broadly is that you know you express an interest as a group to run a public service. If the local authority deem that expression to be appropriate, then actually they would put it out to an open, recu- open procurement process. And, and and the devil is in the detail there, of course. You know, it's an open procurement process. So if if your expression of interest is accepted, then there will be other potentially organisations, large, small that would look at that service as well and work out whether they should be pitching for it in terms of uh, in terms of tendering for it sort of thing. So, you know, it does open up the possibility of, um, you know, private sector providers, um, those that, that might be masquerading sort of social enterprises. And I think we are seeing the rise of, of organisations that are saying they're socially minded, but actually they're not necessarily for anything other than, than personal profit. They're not ploughing profit back into into communities or, or into community development work with the organisations that they support, you know, they're taking personal profit out of it. So there is a potential that this, you know, double-edged sword right the way through, this opportunities for um, local groups to run services, but equally opportunities for them to open services up potentially to, to others. I think the, the, the other thing to say about this is the size and scale. I mean, one of the things that, that has concerned a number of voluntary and community sector organisations already it, 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 are the procurement routes through local authorities and how you know certain certain groups may be excluded already as a consequence of limited cash flow, uh, size of organisation, track record, etc. So you know not not without its challenges, the right to challenge, but possibly an opportunity. Um, and one, and one suspects possibly an opportunity for things that perhaps haven't been thought of before. So, you know, already we're seeing some groups thinking about, well, actually, what could we do in terms of waste collection? Is there a possibility over future years to, to run waste collection in a different way, to separate waste off, to produce energy from some of it at a community-based level, to think about, uh, you know, work and employment opportunities that come out of those sorts of collections and that sort of energy production and, and as a consequence, you know, sell you know sell back, or the energy comes back into the community in a different way as well. So, you know, what are those sorts of options? And it, it's it, you know, it's not necessarily conventional services that we need to be thinking about. I, I think here it's about opening up the the eyes to other opportunities, as it were. Um, right to bid, right to bid is, is, is around community assets primarily. Um, you know, the right to bid itself is. Is really the opportunity that a community group might have to say this asset is of significance to us, and when it comes up for sale or a change of ownership, and that would be, you know, freehold sale or you know long long leasehold sort of thing, then the community group has the opportunity to say, hang on a second, before you dispose of it on the open market, we would wish to uh, put in a put in a, a business plan, a pitch for it sort of thing, and. and and an offer for it. So the way that way that it works, and it's yet yet to be live, but live will be live soon, is that actually you know local authorities will accept um, you know, community organisations 
nominating buildings that would go on a list of, of assets of community value and, and you know question there about how wide in the end an asset of community value can be looked at I mean you know it could be relatively broad you know narrow definition to start with so previous and and, and you know past community community use or social value use sort of thing um, you know what, what does that actually look like what, what do we mean in terms of employment sites there what's the relationship there possibly in terms of opportunity sites in terms of in terms of neighborhood planning and planning, planning policy and, and I don't think any of us know the answer to those sorts of things yet so you know case law as we go through using the, the rights and some of the neighborhood planning and the changes in terms of planning will, will determine where all of this ends up basically but you know, so as a community group, going back to the right to bid, as a community group, you you, you nominate um, an asset that is of significant value to the community. Um, if if the local authority accept the the nomination, then the asset gets put on the list. is held there for a five year period. If during that five year period the the asset becomes available either for uh, you know long long leasehold or, or freehold sale. Then there is an opportunity for the community group, if they're still interested in it, to to have a six month period to write a, a business plan and secure the finance, basically, uh, for for the building. Um, it clearly depends upon the, the you know the nature of the of the business planning there, the capacity within the community to actually think about putting those sorts of things together in terms of business plans, etc., etc. So a lot of the devil in the detail in both right to challenge and right to bid is around business planning, capacity of organisations to actually engage with this stuff, um, as well as how local authorities are seeking to interpret the, the, the regulations as well, because one suspects that they might be interpreted slightly differently um, at, 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 in, in different communities. So... But one to watch and one to potentially find out more about, and you know, come back to, to locality and others in terms of in terms of the rights as well. I guess one of the other things I would say is referendums seem to be um, quite a popular theme in terms of the in, in terms of localism, and they're certainly they're certainly involved in in planning now, which is an interesting change because it's about you know the value of a referendum potentially is how you engage people and get people out sort of thing and mobilize people so there's something there about engaging with people there's something there about getting getting information and making sure that people actually understand what it is that they're being you know asked to think about and and potentially vote on as well so quite an interesting change really in terms of in terms of the way that we look at certain aspects of sort of democratic life so those are the new rights uh, we'll come back to um, referendums under under neighbourhood planning in, in, in a bit. So in a next raft of changes around changes to the planning the planning system. So um, I think we've already touched on the development of the national planning policy framework, which which is you know new new national planning policy framework streamlined. Um, and, and one of the things that that's already thrown up is the is the, the sort of tensions around growth and. Um, you know, lo localism, I guess, to a certain extent, or local development, local economic development, probably more correctly, and how that gets played out, particularly in terms of the the um, the new the new opportunity that exists around neighbourhood planning. So neighbourhood planning, one of the significant planks in terms of the planning system reform, basically it allows um, communities to come together to establish you know, local planning policy for, that is appropriate for their, for their community or their neighbourhood. Um, very broadly in terms of the steps, you know, if, if you're in a town or parish council area, it's assumed that the town or parish council effectively take the lead as a, a lead agency in terms of the 
uh, sort of the neighbourhood planning forum. Uh, it's also assumed that the town, the town or parish boundary, would the, it would be the boundary for the uh, you know for the area of the neighbourhood plan. Although it could be smaller than that, uh, they can choose part of that area. If you haven't got a town or parish council, then you need to establish a, a neighbourhood planning forum. A neighbourhood planning forum has to include um, being inclusive across the the, the neighbourhood or the community in which which it's working. More than twenty one people it has to include. Um, uh, local authority councillors as well, if you, uh, and and has to have clear relationships with, um, you know, with the local authority right the way right the way through this. So, once you've got yourself uh, a group and and you've you know you've decided upon the area, both of those have to be designated by the local authority, and and changes could be made at that stage or suggested at that stage. Um, so particularly changes to the area. I mean, the local authority may have a view that the area needs to be widened or or, or reduced. In, in size sort of thing but you know assuming that you get to a stage where you've got an area designated and you've got a group designated then you basically establish planning policy for, for that neighbourhood now you have to be in conformity with the next layer of planning policy up and in most instances that's going to be the, the, uh, the local development framework within the area which is effectively the local plan of some form you can't you know you can't suggest that you want less than the local plan is suggesting but you can go further so you know neighborhood planning is clearly not a charter for no development anywhere sort of thing it, it, it's it's an opportunity for um, I guess communities to engage in, in, in shaping their place and establishing planning policy that, that allows them to develop you know sustainable communities uh, and sustainable neighborhoods so for example you know the one that I might know well is is, is Totnes, the local development framework there. I think says that uh, you know for any new development of more than ten houses, there has to be ten percent on-site renewables. Now in Totnes, we may wish to go further than that, and and that potentially would be would be appropriate sort of thing. You know, one of the things we couldn't say is you know the local development framework says I can't remember the total number of housing in Tot in Totnes that's required. I think it's four hundred houses across the the area one of the things we couldn't say is we want 200 houses but what we could do is we could uh, say actually where those houses might be and potentially what they look like so you know neighborhood planning allows you to think about just one more potentially very small neighborhoods and, and almost one one policy area or one policy itself or alternatively it can be used aspirationally and I think you know that's the challenge to work out how those things are used aspirationally because you'll need an evidence base to prove that that actually you know what you're saying it can be can be looked at in, in planning policy terms so you know the devil in the detail again there's some support around for for groups to engage in neighborhood planning and i think it's a real opportunity for for those that are thinking about low carbon solutions coming into communities because it's challenging local people to think you know, further down the line for their communities, not just the next eighteen months, two years, but but sort of five years and and, and potentially beyond. Um, I think the other thing that's be said about neighbourhood planning is that you know that you can have neighbourhood plans for business area for business areas as well. Now, you know, one of the things that that crops up there is that you know, in the end, the neighbourhood plan once it's once it's written needs to go to an independent examination. Assuming it goes through an independent examination, and that will check that it's in conformity with local planning policy, etc., etc. Then what happens is um, they, they go out to a referendum. Now, clearly, in in residential areas, the referendum will be based on the electoral register, and people will come out and and, and vote yes or no. And you know, more than fifty one percent of the people that are voting saying yes. Then actually, you've got effectively a neighbourhood plan. In, in business areas, the view is that actually there'll be you know business 
a business referendum in some way, shape or form. So, so clearly, I mean, I would be saying that you need to get your heads around where those might come forward because uh, as communities you may wish to engage with the development of those as well as the, the development of any other neighbourhood planning process because you, know, you, you, you may wish to think about the treatments that, that, are, that groups are wishing to bring forward that may well be planning policy. And the, benef you know, the benefit and the implication of this is that when, when a development proposal comes through from a developer to a local authority where there is a neighbourhood plan, the, you know, the, the, the proposal would be looked at in relation to the neighbourhood plan. So does it meet the neighbourhood plan, yes or no sort of thing? Is it in conformity with that level of planning policy? Yeah. So significant issues there. And I think the other thing, the last thing to say about neighbourhood planning, which goes back to, to some of the other sort of freedoms and flexibilities, is the issue around um, referendums. So, uh, you know, you look at you look at the significance of a referendum. So, I'll, you know, I use Totnes as an example again. I mean, I live in Totnes, come southwest. So, you know, sorry, apologies for using it as an example. But, you know, Totnes, eight thousand people potentially. You know, uh, you'd want you'd want to engage with a, a significant number of those people, if not all of them, because when you get to a referendum, there'd be nothing worse than just me, Rob, and 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 and, and sort of Francis coming out, as it were from Transition Town Totnes and saying yes or no to the plan because how much sort of certainty does that give and how robust would that be? So whilst, whilst you know, key planks of neighbourhood planning are around conformity with local planning policy, actually one of the other bits that is, seems to be critical is the community engagement bit and making sure that you have a method of mobilising people and actually allowing them to really understand what's coming forward. So this is a real opportunity for inclusive... Um, place shaping potentially um, not the only fruit in the basket by all means there are other there are other um, methods of, of community-led planning or neighborhood planning that can be um, that can be used by communities but this has a statutory weight once it's gone through the, the, the process so that's neighborhood planning and again if you want more please come back to us at last well not lastly one of the other significant changes in terms of planning system performance community right to build um, basically it's part of the neighbourhood planning and it allows community groups to bring forward site-specific development um, without going through a formal planning application process. It's a different route to get a planning, planning application, a planning consent, basically. Um, so you need to meet minimum criteria. You need to be a, a bona fide group, community group with a, with a decent legal status. Um, you need to then have a proposal that would gain support through a referendum for your neighbourhood and again, you need to define your neighbourhood. It may well be that, you know, that is in certain places the whole of town or parish council because the area is small. It might be a part of that, or it might be a part of a uh, an unparished area that's establishing a neighbourhood plan. You don't need to be establishing a neighbourhood plan to bring a community right to build order forward, but you will need to get your the, the, the neighbourhood designated by the local authority. So you'll need to understand where your beneficiaries are in terms of the group that, that is bringing the order forward. And as a group that brings it forward, you need to be for you know social and e e e social and economic regeneration in the area, not for not for profit. Very much. Um, you know, very much member-led, so the opportunity for local people to be able to uh, to be members of the organisation to shape where that organisation goes to strategically. Um, a lot of work involved potentially in terms of a right to build order, but you know, you produce the plans, you produce the details. Once once you've done all of that, and once you've talked to all the the sort of 
previously what would be regarded as statutory consultees, because there's a list of consultees that you need to talk to in terms of the right to build to make sure they're happy with it. Once you've done all of that, then, then effectively it goes to an independent examination. Once it's been through the independent examination, then, then it goes to uh, a, a referendum again. And again, with the referendum, it's you know fifty percent of those people that are coming out to vote saying saying yes to it, or more than fifty percent, then then fifty one percent, then you then you, you know you get effectively a planning consent. So, you know, if you think about neighbourhood planning, you think about community right to build, potentially real opportunities there for communities to bring forward development that is appropriate for their communities that could be rooted in planning policy, uh, and and that could do some of the things that you know communities have been wanting to do for a number of years they could be around uh, renewables could be around small-scale housing could be around employment use could be around open space play areas now also running alongside this real opportunities for to see some of those different forms of development models coming out of this so self-build models community-led development in a completely different way sort of thing so opportunities to align some of this stuff with the new financial measures the stuff around uh, you know understanding uh, the relationship with community share issues potentially the use of community development finance you know all of those sorts of opportunities coming out of both neighborhood planning and and potentially right to build so still with the um, still with the changes to the planning system the other one that I will want to mention is the sort of requirement for developers consult and I think it's quite significant in terms of larger sites that that requirement does now exist and I would be saying actually that that should be more than consultation that should be meaningful engagement and, and so you know actually if, if nothing else getting involved in you know large site development at a local level and, and, and talking to developers and wanting them to engage properly is, is something that you should be able to lobby for and, and, and should be supported in terms of you know localism and the, and the planning system reforms. Um, Moving on, I guess one of the other things that I'd like to mention is that you know there's been a change to the way in which uh, national infrastructure and significant significant infrastructure projects are, are dealt with. So, power stations, nuclear power stations, train lines, you know, airports, etc., etc. So those nationally significant projects now, um, basically responsibility is 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 down to ministers in terms of decision making. But of course, one of the things that's taking place now in terms of neighbourhood planning is, is raising that debate about you know the relationship between the the, the, the global and 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 local, I mean, particularly around issues around energy, also food production, and and cross over there into sort of food security as well. But you know, land use in general and how land use, and as soon as you you know, if you my my view, I think on this now is if you're giving if you're giving local people the opportunity to establish planning policy at a local level, then they're going to want to engage in debates around, you know, how land use is looked at across the country and what it looks like to be truly sustainable, because those are the debates that are taking place at that level. So, I think you know, whilst whilst clearly decisions about national infrastructure will be taken at a ministerial level. One of the things that's likely to transpire out of these changes is the opportunity for local people to, to engage in the debate in, in a way that is perhaps more forceful and, and th than it was before because they're coming at it from a point of actually looking at development and planning policy in their own neighbourhoods as well. So, you know, 
I guess this is the issue about being an informed client and about um, shaping the place that you're in. So the opportunities that exist through the planning system now, particularly to for transition groups and others that are thinking about low carbon development, to embed some of those ideas in planning policy and for them to have statutory weight is, is clearly there. Devil is in the detail, a huge amount of hard work, need capacity and and capabilities within communities that don't always exist, but that, you know, that possibility is now there, potentially. Um, last measure in terms of uh, localism, before I move on to some of the other changes that are taking place at a national level, uh, it's the, the sort of reform to housing um, decision-making. Uh, and, and I guess two, two bits that I think could potentially be quite significant and, and bearing in mind that localism is an enabling act I mean you know it requires people to actually pick it up and do it so it gives them the opportunity it doesn't mean that it's going to happen um, but you know what I'm saying it allows people to pick it up and do it you know if, if we've, we've already mentioned that if there's a challenge sort of thing for uh, running of a public service then that opens that debate up to uh, to everybody you know the, the the planning system reform clearly at a neighbourhood level you're going to need to talk to landowners and, and developers you're not going to be able to get away with not doing that to to bring forward a plan so you know writ large in this is collaboration potentially with all sectors but it also means that there's potential for sectors uh, to see advantage be fleet of foot and potentially compete in areas that they weren't previously competing in so just moving on then in terms of the, the housing reform stuff and two issues that i think are quite significant the the reform of lifetime tenancy stuff so, so previously with lifetime tenancies now now they can be two or more years where they're where they're granted and of course the the implications to that is actually it's the opportunity to move um, you know to move people on as it were so uh, you know there are already communities that would be regarded as transient communities in terms of in terms of some social housing areas um, you know and and the potential for those to uh, you know to to be to be reinforced, as it were, through not granting of lifetime tenancies, through not creating stability within the communities, through through potentially this route. That's not saying that uh, you know that those that reform will be used, but it's there and it could be used. And I guess the other one is social housing allocations. You know, the local authorities have an opportunity to set its own policy now about you know who's on the the. the um, you know the housing lists, as it were, and who gets on housing lists. So, the implications for those, both of those two uh, reforms are that you could actually change the way in which you deal with social housing quite significantly in this country. Um, you know, and there's also there's also a bit in the legislation now that means that you know with the homelessness legislation that, that actually local authorities you know previously had the right to refuse private sector rent be a private sector rented accommodation. You don't anymore. You know, it's there, and that's assuming that local authorities and, 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 and registered social landlords would wish to use these reforms, but they could. Um, and I guess, and I guess that's the point. They could use them. It's not saying that they will use them, but you know, in areas where they do get used, then then the potential change in terms of housing and social housing in this country can be quite significant. And as a consequence, you know, what does that mean for the support organisations that are picking up support for those people that that you know, don't have stable housing or looking at housing, what, what does that mean given that those services primarily are commissioned out from, from local authorities and, and other agencies and, and at a time when actually there's cuts and we know that there's a potentially a further cut in terms of 
uh, you know, the discretionary funding is going to go completely from local authorities by the looks of things given given the local government association report recently that that actually you know the potential for for fallout from some of these things is is it is quite significant unless they're you know unless there's some join up across policy areas I guess is what I would be saying. Um, so moving on. So that was localism. I skirted over the, over the last couple of slides there, really. But just moving on in terms of educational reform. Um, so again, more I sent for the education from Bill on, in November of last year. And it's an interesting one because some of the things that are taking place in terms of educational reform seem to indicate that you know the there is a shift away from local to to the centre again. So. Um, you know, uh, and, it, and it sort of provokes the discussion about what is the model of decentralisation that we're really looking at here. So, you know, the abolition of a number of quangos, um, you know, the making the arrangements for for setting up new schools and the move to actually make you know academy status for for most schools and and the potential that 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 has in terms of opening up opportunities for other providers uh, to come in and, and, and run schools and, and services so you know I think failing academies have within their you know, contracts within the academies that say that you know failing academy there is an opportunity to bring in um, another uh, provider of the service to manage the school sort of thing well you know, it could be private sector it could be you know it could be any one of those large um, national organisations that are running you know, significant public service delivery at this stage sort of thing that think about positioning for some of those services. Um, so it's quite interesting that you know, whilst there are a number of things uh, across the board in terms of localism that look to devolve power down, there are others that are looking to uh, potentially shape the, the nature of the sort of decentralised model that we're looking at. Um, I will mention free schools because I think it flags up the issues around capacities and capabilities within communities. So, I mean, you, you know, you look at you look at sort of the the east west London split, and I know that um, you know where the just down from where the Olympic Stadium is, we, we have members. Locality has members down there that will report that you know there aren't enough um, primary school places at this stage, and yet you know there's not a school development in new school development in sight sort of thing and 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 there's there's, there's certainly no discussion about a free school there primarily because actually the, you know the, the capacity and the skills capabilities within the community you know they're not at that level to be able to pull something off like a free school whereas in areas where you, you know you have got capabilities and you have got skills and um, you know slightly more um affluent areas might I say that you know those areas where potentially those developments are coming forward so you know what is it you know what does it mean in terms of thinking about the model of decentralization and, and, and getting people involved for those communities where you don't have skills you don't have capacities you know there's not a lot of community engagement at this stage what are the, what are the opportunities for those communities to really engage and how do we support those communities to engage and you know what does that really look like and I guess the last thing to say in terms of the um, the educational reform stuff, there are a whole range of sort of little things in there as well that that actually, although again they may not be used, might be profound and might be quite significant. And one that sticks out for me is the um, the opportunities for schools to uh, to not have to give notice, twenty four hour notice for detention anymore, but but they can do it instantly. Now, you know, I'm not saying that schools will use this. Some may, some may not. But but it exists as an opportunity. And and of course. 
you know the potential there is you know you, if your son or your daughter doesn't get home sort of thing and, and you know they've not they've not called because they're in detention they missed the bus and you know what are the implications of those things and, and how does that work in terms of you know again being inclusive communities and, and, and truly looking at you know how we support people to to engage and, and, and be engaged so just I mean I, I guess what I'm saying with 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 all of this is the importance of being able to read across and say okay what does this look like as a picture you know it, it, there are some clear opportunities but equally actually if we don't if we don't use the opportunities then could they be used by others and, and would we end up with a with a completely different picture for for society than the one we have at this stage um, so just moving on, so that's education reform, moving on, health reform. Interesting that the you know the, the minister said that they've screwed up in, and, and that's the direct quote, I think it is, that, that they screwed up in terms of the changes. But, you know, it's got royal assent, it will happen. So, um, you know, the way in which health is commissioned is going to change from, from 2013 onwards. You know, one of the interesting things there is that there's a recognition that you need uh, larger bodies to think about commissioning uh, at a different level and then the relationship between those larger bodies and GPs so the GPs potentially commission more at their level uh, uh, now how that will work out in practice remains to be seen it does seem to make sense to, for um, community based organisations in those communities to talk to doctors and, and to start thinking about how they might engage with them in terms of commission services but equally it shows that you know we're, we're talking about a potentially a model of decentralisation that, that is not looking at regional structures, that is removing some of those intermediary structures. So, you know, how how local capacity engages them with, with something that is more significant as a body at, at a different national level or a different you know, cross-regional level sort of thing is, is quite an interesting conversation and discussion to have. But, you know... So how those changes in terms of health reform would be played out remain to be seen. And of course, running alongside some of these changes, you, you've got all the stuff around personalised budgeting, you, you know, um, the opportunity to uh, to choose the right things for you as, as an individual. So how those get played out in terms of how, how services are delivered as well as commissioned, you know, remains to be seen. And quite an interesting, quite an interesting you know, thing to look at in, in eight months nine months ten months down the line sort of thing and, and, and particularly how that relates to you know and again across some of the other areas of localism and and also some of the other reforms that have taken place um so some good news um best value guidance uh, you know something else that is significant and, and that has come in uh, i mean basically lots of local authorities fund um community-based organizations um and you know they 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 fund them through contract service level agreements uh, you know grant funding and what's taken place when when there was a, a cut in budgets from public sector budgets lots of community based organizations lost their funding almost instantly as a consequence of the cuts and, and best value guidance says that actually there is a requirement to to give a three months notice of a cut and that those those cuts can't be disproportionate now I don't think we're aware of anybody yet who's used the, the, the best value guidance. Um, 
in in terms of looking at judicial review because the you know the local authority is not being compliant and, and one of the <laughs> one suspects that she might be because lots of voluntary community sector organisations don't have the capacity as the as a consequence of the loss of funding sort of thing so it's not actually possible to do it but uh, you know one of the things that this does is it says this is a tool that's there to be used and actually if people don't know about it they're not going to use it so it is quite significant that people get get their heads around you know the changes that are taking place and the opportunities that exist again um sort of you know to flag this one up in 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 that sense sort of thing yeah um mention of the community sustainable communities act before um this is a i guess i guess really be looking at this for sustainable economic development at a local level so you know if there's something that actually could change at a local level so for example in Islington they've been they've been looking at the retention of local business rates um, you know stuff like that is likely to happen now in a number of ways but you know potentially the opportunity to, to do something locally that allows you to become more sustainable in terms of a local centre, you know, a local shopping centre, you know, the, the issue around local services preserved in a particular way. So you put your idea forward to the local authority, the local authority thinks it's a good idea, then actually they need to consult, engage widely on that. And again, the, the opportunity to possibly use a referendum within within you know, the Sustainable Communities Act to make sure that, that is what the community is saying, and then you know, then then the idea goes to government, and, and government can challenge or, or reject the proposal. But alternatively, they can turn and say, "Yeah, that makes sense. So get on with it," sort of thing. So the opportunity to use the the Sustainable Communities Act, but also that you know that that bit within um, the freedoms and flexibilities under localism that allows local authorities to do anything that that is legal now clearly. Clearly, there's some opportunities there to think about what comes out of, um, you know, energy descent planning, the relocalisation of, of of the economy, sort of thing, the um, the economy project, those those sorts of things that are starting to think about local economic development in in a way that is sustainable within communities, are real opportunities potentially here. Um, set aside that, or the other side of that, I guess, and this is this thing about. You know, capacity to to engage in in some way. There are some other significant changes, and one that I want to mention is the is the challenges around the work program. So, I think everybody's caught up with the you know some of the issues that are coming out of the work program. But if you look at if you look at the work program, you know what it what it did is it's moved to a prime contractor model basically. So, you know, you need to be a quite significant size organisation to be able to uh, to be able to to manage the program, you know, quite a significant cash flow. I think it was three million. It might be no, either three million one or five. I think. Um, so what it did is it ruled out smaller deliverers who, who didn't have, you know, didn't meet the, effectively the criteria. And, and of course, that's the challenge in terms of using the right to challenge. You know, would you meet the criteria in terms of procurement and, uh, and commissioning across local authorities and other public sector agencies? Um, the other thing that it does, of course, is it removes the point of delivery further away from the individual. And, and with some of those smaller organisations that were previously involved in delivering, you know, as the work programme, in, in, in reality, actually they knew the client group particularly well, you know, work, work with them sort of thing, and as a consequence of that were able to, you know, to meet local needs and make it work. 
moving moving the contract to a different level means that actually you, you've still got to put in local delivery. So how does that take place? Do you replace existing local delivery? Do you work with the existing local delivery? Which is, in a lot of cases, actually you know those that were delivering before have been subcontracted. But unfortunately, what's come with that is a squeeze on price as well. So you know the implication here is larger and larger and bigger contracts, and the concern that actually. You know, we're seeing um, those that are not necessarily there for long-term social gain and social value within communities delivering some of those contracts, and and they're effectively squeezing smaller, you know, community-based organisations, those that actually know what the need is at a local level and can deliver at a local level, squeezing them, sort of thing. So, you know, there's a question there really is that is is that sort of stuff showing the sort of new business as usual sort of thing you know would it would it be that we end up with larger and bigger contracts and 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 you know delivery at a local level which is subcontracted and squeezed and not necessarily as vibrant and diverse as it as it could be you know is that one model of, of decentralization or, or is there another model whereby actually we piece all of this together and as a consequence there is real change at a local level real sustainability so you can imagine running you know, two or three services from a, from a large community anchor building that's been gained through the right to bid sort of thing, number of other asset holdings within that community that are generating, you know, bid both business opportunities and employment opportunities within those communities uh, that, that that could be, you know, radically low carbon because that's the way that the, wish, the, the community wishes to take it. New build that, that you know, uses local labour and, and high significance of... High, high proportion, sorry, of uh, you know energy production at a local level. Looking at local food production as well. So real opportunities. And one one side of the picture that way. The other side of the picture is actually there are a limited number of of sort of potentially private sector providers that are providing it all because actually that, that's the way it's opened up. And I think that's the sort of the double edged sword of localism. And I think from our point of view, you know, sat in locality, actually we see this as a real opportunity. And an opportunity but only if people engage with it and pick it up and use some of these things. So, you know, and that's what I would wish you to take away, that this is the opportunity. You've got to mobilise, you've got to get picked up and you've got to start using some of these things. So to go back to where I started, 28 months, it's, it's all changed. You know, there's not a policy, you know, I was going to say there, there are probably some policies now that are the same as they were 28 months ago, but, but the bulk of them are new and, and you know, they've not necessarily been pieced together yet sort of thing. So and, you know, how you read across policy is quite significant and, and what I'm saying to you here is get your head around the, the major bits if you can and, and create the jigsaw that is right for your community by using some of these things that are now enabling and... and you know, are, are there for, for open and, and discussion with others sort of thing. So it's all changed. Now, in addition to that, of course, we've got, um, you know, we've got a new team with the cabinet reshuffled. So, you know, the one questions whether it's actually the direction of travel now for all of those new policy areas is, is completely clear. Possibly not. So, again, that's an opportunity for for communities to shape things. And I think, you know, central government, that's, that's what they're saying. So there's the opportunity. And, of course, actually, for me, that's the... Um, you know, that's the mirror across the Portsmouth Football Club, really. And, you know, 28 months, it's all changed and we've got a new team and, and it's still not clear for me what the direction of travel is. So my last two sides are basically a series of pictures. Um, I, I like the first one because where are we? And, and I personally don't want to work from, from that shop, but, you know, e equally there are some that we're saying that's, that's precisely where we're going. So I think, you know, we need to make sure that we don't go there. So... 
but what is it that we can do to redress the balance and do something different? I think this is the opportunity to do something completely different. It is the opportunity to redress the balance. And you look at that donkey there, or the, be an ass, basically, and you say, hang on a second, how did it ever get in that position? Who knows? Anyway, one of the things we've got to do is we've got to take the boxes off the back. We've got to redress the balance. We've got to distribute the boxes in a different way. We've got to connect this up in a different way. We've got to make jigsaws. You know, we've got to make we take the pieces of the jigsaw and make them into pictures within communities that create truly sustainable communities that put people, local people, at the heart of all of that work, so that they're meaningfully engaged, so that actually they know their place within our community, and as a consequence, the community is, benefits as a consequence of that. That's the opportunity of localism. It is, as we said, a double-edged sword, because if you don't act and you don't get involved in some of these things, then clearly others will, will, will wish to do it. So now is the time, now is the opportunity. Um, hope that makes sense. If there's anything else that you'd like, then then by all means, please come back to me. Thank you. I'm done.